Well, please be seated and good morning. Thank you. And you can turn in your Bibles or your bulletins to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Good to be back. Missed you all um, a couple weeks ago, and um, so it's good to be preaching again. It was St. Augustine that noted that the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism are visible signs of God's invisible grace. Visible signs of God's invisible grace. In other words, the sacraments are a visual gospel. You hear the gospel preached, it's an auditory gospel, and then we see the gospel in the sacraments. As we participate in the sacrament, something happens to our life when we're sent out, and that is that we begin to live sacramentally. That is that our lives are a three-dimensional visual gospel, the way we live. Um, As we devote our bodies to God, as we devote our genders to God, as we devote our sexuality to God, he causes us, by his spirit, to become visible signs of God's invisible grace. And this is especially true for sacramental marriage and sacramental celibacy. What are those things? Sacramental marriage is a lifelong, one flesh union between a man and a woman who have made a covenantal vow to God, to one another, and to the larger community to permanently, freely, faithfully, and fruitfully love one another. Um, Sacramental celibacy, on the other hand, is a state of unmarried chastity, that means Um, You're not sexually active in any way, and you're doing that out of love for Christ. That might be because of temporary circumstances, meaning you you haven't yet become married, but you you might one day, or it could be because of a lifelong vow. Some people make a lifelong vow to live celibate and to be that sign um, of God's uh, love for for us. Both callings are a way um, to express our life with our life, that we are all and only for Jesus. Two different ways to say, I belong to Jesus completely, celibacy and marriage. They are three-dimensional human expressions of the gospel, and they are complementary callings. That means that we need each other. They They go in pairs in the church. God calls some people to celibacy, either temporarily or for life. God calls others to marriage, And that marriage is meant to be permanent and to bring about children, if it's possible. COVID has divided us. I'm realizing this now more than ever. It's divided us into the smallest pods possible, and it's not supposed to be that way. Um, And so I'm praying, um, even as I'm preaching, that we can begin to gather again as celibates and as married people and families around, around this table and around each other's tables and in parks and in any place we can, because our city needs both signs of the gospel. Our city needs both signs of the visible gospel, sacramental marriage, sacramental celibacy, and living in community. So this might be, for us as a church, the most supernatural way to live. This might be the most scandalous, countercultural way that we can bear witness to the gospel with our lives and in our day. 
Um, and we need each other to fulfill our vows. We can't fulfill our vows with our own power. We need the power of God's holy bride, his church filled with his spirit, people of a diverse calling to fulfill the vow that God has given us. So this morning, we're going to receive our Lord's direct, beautiful, good, true teaching about both callings, marriage and celibacy. His first listeners, including his own disciples, were scandalized by this teaching. They didn't like it. They thought it was unrealistic. Many rejected it on its face. Yet others received the teaching, and they lived the teaching, as many do today. So if you want a vision for your life, if you want a vision for your body, if you want a vision for your sexuality, for your gender, ask his spirit to open your mind and heart to the teaching of our Lord. Ask him now even to open your heart to the teaching of our Lord about these things, and he will give you vision. Um, it's a lie that what Jesus said cannot or should not be lived. It's a lie. And so open your heart. I plead with you to what our Lord says about marriage and celibacy, and open your heart to him calling you to live it three-dimensionally. Let's look at Matthew 19. We're going to start in verse 3. It is worth noting that on the heels, uh, this is coming on the heels of healing ministry of our Lord. And so um, he cares about people in pain, our Lord does. He also is willing to engage with people who have pride. And that's what the Pharisees had. The Pharisees didn't come for healing. They came to trap him. And so he's going to still engage them. Um, verse 3 begins the exchange. Matthew 19, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him. It's a test question by, by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Um, so here's the scene. Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem. The opposition to his ministry and his life is increasing the closer he gets to the city center of Jerusalem, which opposes him. And uh, as he gets closer to Jerusalem, the opposition, the elite of society, the elite religious leaders begin to, um, begin to oppose him more and more. And these Pharisees clash with him. It's almost like they're blocking him. They're blocking his way to the temple. They're blocking his authority. Um, they're, they're beginning to oppose him. And uh, despite their reputation as conservatives, the Pharisees held what they believed to be progressive, compassionate views about marriage. And they test Jesus with this question. Is it lawful to divorce, translated literally, send away one's wife for any cause? Kind of a curious question. Is it lawful to divorce or send off someone's wife for any reason at all? In this culture, divorce happened all the time. It was a divorce culture, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't equal. Men, it was, a, it was a men divorcing wives culture. And that's just the way it was. That's just the way, that's just what people thought you had to do. A significant power imbalance uh, existed between the genders. A woman had no rights of her own in that culture. She needed a husband for basic survival. So if a husband decided he wanted a different wife, he would just send away his first wife, who would then become destitute. And it was a justice issue. Yet in their day, this was the mainstream progressive position. Of course, men would find reasons to divorce and send away their wives. 
and reasons included, no exaggeration at all, she burned the bread. Or another attractive woman came along and presented herself. I'm not exaggerating. These were the Pharisees said, hey, of course you would have to do that. You know, another wife comes along, go ahead and, and send away your first wife. And what they did is they backed up their position on marriage with, um, with Scripture, Deuteronomy 24, which gave them their realistic view of marriage. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, gives instructions for how to respond to situations of divorce that arise. So um, Moses gave a law that protected women, and it went like this. Let's say someone gets married, a couple gets married, all right? And the man decides to send away his wife. Well, he needs to do so with a certificate of divorce if he's going to do that. Why would he do that? Well, here's what happened. The wife would be sent away. Someone else would marry her. She would get, uh, she would get uh, something out of the arrangement from that marriage. Let's say that he died and left her with possessions. So she had stuff, right? Well, then the first husband would be like, oh, I want to get married again. Why don't you come and marry me again so I can get all your stuff? And it was a cycle of injustice, and the women were taking the brunt of it. And so Moses is like, listen, if you're going to be a jerk face and divorce your wife and send her away, and then she, she gets an inheritance from someone else, you can't just pretend that you want to be remarried again just to get her stuff. So what was stopping all of that? The certificate of divorce. We've got proof, buddy. You cannot do this again. And so what happened was in Jesus's day, the Pharisees looked at that text and was like, look, Moses commanded the man to divorce his wife with a certificate. Sin gets complicated, doesn't it? I mean, the complications that sin creates, the kind of situations that you have to make rules for. Have you ever had to make a stupid rule for a stupid situation? But it has nothing to do with the highest call and the highest vision and what was originally intended. So Jesus, in response to this question, goes back to the original, beautiful, foundational vision for marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. It was the text around which and the vision around which texts like Deuteronomy 24 orbited. And so Jesus is like, let's get back to the gravitational center. Let's get back to the vision. In verse 4, he answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Let's just pause there. God created human beings, and it's in Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus is quoting it as male and female from the beginning. That is to say, the Lord God decided that we would not be asexual creatures. There are asexual creatures in our universe. It doesn't take a, um, it, it, you don't have to have two genders, as it were, to, for it to reproduce and continue on. But nevertheless, he made human beings a sexually dimorphic species. That is to say that you need male bodies capable of donating genetic material and female bodies capable of receiving that genetic material and donating their own to bring about new life. And it didn't have to be this way, but God decided that it would. So why would God create us a sexually dimorphic species rather than an asexual species? Well, Genesis, or sorry, verse 5, as well as Genesis 
1 and 2 give us the purpose for the genders. In part, there's a purpose for the genders, and Jesus quotes God as saying this in Genesis, verse 5. And he said, and God said, therefore, so there's two genders, why? Well, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two two genders are to come together in an exclusive relationship. So a man is going to leave, literally forsake his father and his mother, the closest relationships in his life. And he will hold fast to his wife and then something new will be created from their union. The two will become one flesh. The word uh, hold fast is a really interesting word here. It's a word for glued together or welded together. That there's a, like a, something permanent is created that is not meant to be undone. If you were to undo it, it would be like taking a body apart. It would be like separating muscle tissue from the bone. That it becomes an unnatural thing to separate once it's bonded and glued together. Verse six, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, God has joined something together. He's designed uh, human beings, male and female, for the purpose of a communion that is closer than the communion between parent and child. It's also more than just the sexual union. It's a spiritual union also, a spiritual union that lasts until one, of the, one or both of the parties dies. Marriage isn't simply a social construct, though it is that. It is designed by God, and according to Jesus, it remains normative and lasting. Okay, so if any of you have kids, um, you know that they love the question, why? <laughs> why helps them understand what's, what's going on in the mind of the parent. If they want to know what's going on in the mind of the parent... They ask the question, why? Here's an example. No dessert until you finished your carrots. Why? Because your body needs the carrots more than the dessert. Why? Because carrots have fiber and vitamin A, which helps your digestion and eyesight. The the dessert has sugar, which only makes you hyper. Why? Just eat your carrots, little one. It's the way things are. So let's use that method to get to what Jesus is saying. God created two genders. Why? Well, in part, to form an unbreakable union, marriage union, for life. Why? Well, that's where our New Testament reading complements the picture A Christian marriage exists to reveal to the world Christ's unbreakable love for the church, which lasts not only until death, it lasts beyond death. And we need visual illustrations of this. Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay, so Paul says that the mystery of marriage is profound and refers to Christ and the church. The mystery at the heart of the universe 
the greatest love that we could ever know and ever see. And yet we need to see it. We need to see the love between Jesus and his church. For years, I've had this vague idea that Shakespeare was a profound playwright and that I should know more Shakespeare because, hey, he knows human nature so well and he's a master of the English language. And yet every time I tried reading one of his plays or, or watching one of his plays for that matter, I just found it incomprehensible and obscure. And then I discovered a modern version of Julius Caesar that I could understand. The actor could do all the voices. He used language that I could comprehend and take in. And then like, it was like, okay, finally Shakespeare's insights and beauty were within my reach and within my grasp. The drama between the groom Jesus and his bride, the church, needs a fresh adaptation. It needs people who will unveil this mystery and in each generation, God brings together a man and a woman as cast members in this cosmic drama. They will display it um, humbly and beautifully. This beautiful mystery would be otherwise obscure, out of touch, just incomprehensible to the people of our great city, just words or just an outdated superstition. Yet, Husbands and wives in every generation have the creative task of bringing the glory uh, of marriage between Christ and his church alive for their generation, for their community, for, for their city. And so that's what we need. We need marriages, unbreakable marriages, sacramental marriages, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do you part. This is God's vision. It doesn't always work out. We are weak and we have complications. and Sometimes things break down and fail. Yet it is still God's vision for us. And Jesus, in a divorce culture, holds it up, extols it, says, this is possible. This is for you. The Pharisees pushed back. They were like, hey, this is unrealistic. Verse seven, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So again, twisting scripture, slightly nuanced. Moses didn't command their certificate. He allowed it. Verse eight, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus responds, hey, don't let human frailty become your vision of what's possible. Don't let all the stories of failure and pain and sin tell you what's possible and what's not possible. Don't harden your heart to God's original vision. Raise up your eyes and see that beautiful, good, and true vision as it was in the beginning. Let God tell you what is possible. So I just wanna ask you this morning, have you hardened your heart to God's vision for marriage? Have you hardened your heart? Um, you might be a child of divorce, and you know firsthand the pain when a marriage union breaks apart. And you might conclude that lifelong marriage is just unrealistic. Or maybe you have friends, you have enough friends who have become sexually active outside of marriage, and you might conclude that the only realistic, healthy way to express your sexuality is to become sexually active outside of marriage. Or maybe you um, 
uh, have enduring attraction to the same gender. Or you know many who are and you love them. Or maybe you have gender dysphoria. You don't feel at home in your own bodies. And, or maybe you know those who are. And so you just feel like maybe this is unrealistic or too painful to accept or to live, too restrictive. Maybe it's something else. I don't know what it is, but personal pain can harden the heart, can't it? Personal pain can harden the heart. We go through enough pain and we're like, I'm never going to experience that again. The pain of others can harden the heart, especially if you have a, a compassionate, connective personality. The Lord cares about this too. He cares about your pain and the pain of others. Have you written off this vision out of pain? I just want to encourage you this morning. Don't let human frailties harden your heart to God's vision. Don't build an ethical system around exceptions. Don't let the world, the flesh, or the devil tell you what's possible and what's not possible. From the beginning, it was not so. Jesus concludes this part on marriage by saying in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus draws his theology to a conclusion based on God's original vision. When God creates a marriage bond, he joins two people together, and in his eyes, in God's eyes, when that happens, when it really happens, no one's lying, pretending to be someone else or whatever. Two people of their free will are joined together. God bears as a witness. As Malachi says, he gives them a portion of his spirit so that they can bring about new life. That union is valid until death. Even if the relationship ends on a human level, and sometimes it needs to, in his eyes, there is still a marriage. There are situations when a legal divorce is is necessary and right, especially in cases of abuse. Let's say that you went on vacation, and while you were away, people break into your home or your apartment. They throw out all of your belongings. They paint the walls. They spray their own air freshener. They completely move in. By the time you get back from vacation, you open up the door, and you're like, what is going on? And uh, the new residents are like, guess what? This isn't your house anymore. This isn't your apartment anymore. As you can see, all your stuff's gone. As you can see, it smells fresh. As you can see, the walls are a different color. You need to find a new house. Bye-bye. And you'd be like, well, it might smell like you, and you might have your stuff, but let's get out the deed of the property and see whose name is on the deed. Let's get out the lease for the apartment and see whose signature is on the lease And who paid the fee to have this apartment? Who pays the rent for this apartment? In the eyes of the law, it does not belong to you. It belongs to me. And you need to leave. This helps us understand a little bit the way God sees a marriage. If it's a true marriage in God's eyes, it doesn't matter if you break it off and start something new. In the eyes of God, if he truly brought you together, it is valid and lasting until death. Now, there are so many pastoral questions to accompany this teaching. And if you know me, you know that I care about the pastoral questions and the implications and the way of working this out in community. And there's no easy answers there. 
There is time and space for that. For now, I want you to catch the vision. See the vision. Marriage is a lifelong bond. As such, it is an outward expression of a deep mystery. Christ's unbreakable, undying love for his church, a love that lasts beyond death, a love that lasts beyond a lifetime. Marriages only last a lifetime, if that. Christ's love for the church lasts lifetime upon lifetime upon lifetime into eternity. It is the most unbreakable marriage you will ever see. And maybe you're thinking, you know what? Maybe that was realistic for the old-fashioned people back in Jesus' day, but for us moderns who know better, it's not possible anymore. Human beings have been radically altered since this day, and so we just can't do this. I want you to see this. Jesus' own disciples thought this was unrealistic and unworkable. His own disciples thought it was unrealistic. In verse 10, the disciples said to him, you can see it right here in verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If you can't just send away your wife at will, why even try? Like, wow, if you're stuck for, for uh, life with one woman, why get married at all? It's not plausible in their minds. Men send away wives. That's just how things are. And you know what's interesting is that they may have been sarcastic. It may have been a throwaway line for them. But Jesus, Jesus responds to them and is like, yeah, like if what you just said is true, like very few people could live up to the reality that you just described. Because what you just described is what I'm living. Verse 11, Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, like what you just said, but only those to whom it is given. This saying that they said, of, maybe it's better not to marry. Jesus responds, yeah, for some people it's better not to marry, like me. And not everyone can receive this teaching. Uh, this is Jesus' whole life. He knows what a challenge it is to be unmarried and to be faithful to God. And he's unafraid to call others to join him. He's unafraid to say, put your whole life on this altar as a way to give glory to God. So he elaborates what it means to live the call of celibacy. And he uses the term eunuchs. Eunuchs is a, like a shorthand phrase for those who are unwilling or unable to have children. And so they stay unmarried. And in, in doing that, they are also, um, they're not sexually active. Although they are sexual creatures, they're not sexually active. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, that is, people biologically unable to have children, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, in other words, people who have renounced marriage by choice. And then there are eunuchs, Jesus says, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That is, people who have chosen a celibate life, no sex, no marriage, as a form of wholehearted commitment to the Lord. And then he ends, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Jesus is not afraid to challenge all of the conventional norms, <laughs> all of them. Plenty of people won't like what he just said. Elite society held eunuchs in contempt. They hated eunuchs. They were the invisible people. Get them off to the side. Their existence is null. They need to become invisible. They were cast off because they were not considered to be a complete person. Eunuchs were considered to be a non-complete person. Think about that. Why? Not because they were sexually chaste, but because they had no children. 
If you were unwilling or unable to pass along your name and your lineage, what good are you anyway? That was everything in Jewish society, everything. Yet Jesus taught and lived a deep countercultural reality. When you leave behind the possibility of a biological family, for the sake of the kingdom of God, you get a new family and a new reward. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters, more than you left behind. You get a new family, you get a real family that you sit around a real table with and live in community with. And your spiritual lineage is real too. It's lasting. It's even more consequential than a biological lineage. This is what the prophet Isaiah speaks about in our Old Testament lesson. When he says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Don't miss this. A name and a monument better than sons and daughters. I will give to them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What is Jesus saying about people who are celibate? He's saying that they have entrusted not only their sexuality to God, which is the big deal in our culture, but, he's, but they're also giving their current family situation to God, and they've entrusted their future legacy and name to God. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus took Isaiah 56 seriously, and he lived it. He didn't have biological children to carry on his name, yet he has a name and a legacy in the kingdom of God. Now listen, there will come a time, stake with me, I know this is long, there will come a time when all Jesus' children are finally gathered together at the ultimate final wedding family dinner. The Bible calls this the wedding supper of the Lamb. And at that gathering, we will all be celibate. That is to say there will be no more human marriage, no more sexual activity, no more new children being born. Our temporary unions will give way to the ultimate, lasting, and fully satisfying union that we have in Jesus. All of us in Jesus have a celibate future. And those who live a celibate life now are a living symbol of the age to come, the feast to come. They are living a sign of the end of history, a symbol of the ultimate consummation of love, a symbol of God's ultimately satisfying love, more satisfying than any type of human love. Now, many people who are living celibate lives do wish to be married. Some have vowed to be celibate for their entire life. Others, others want to be married. They're wired for marriage, yet they're currently celibate, and they find themselves in kind of a unique in-between situation. Are you in that situation? It's like in between where it's really painful. You, you are living the celibate life with a state of uncertainty. Will this be for life? Will this be forever? You know marriage isn't the end-all, be-all. You know it comes with trade-offs and sacrifices. Sometimes I, I think there are people here who have passed up on opportunities for marriage because you knew it wasn't the right thing, the right person, the right time, the right call. There wasn't a call there to live the sacrament of marriage. And so you said no to it. And you're wondering, should I have done that? And I want to say, thank you for doing that. Thank you for taking this seriously. Thank you for living the call to celibacy and for, 
for honoring the call to sacramental marriage as you did. So for those in that in-between stage, what does joy and fullness look like for those who are currently called to sacramental celibacy? I want to share with you a real-life testimony from a woman named Emily, and she works with college students in a different city. She says this, I didn't want to be single. That was the hand that was dealt to me. My 30s were tough because I was attending a lot of weddings and wondering what was wrong with me that I was still single. But things changed in my 40s. On my 40th birthday, I got up my journal and wrote, what is good about this? Then I wrote down all the names of people I had invested in because I was single and available to invest in them. I had a list of 300 people. My 40s were a wonderful time for me. I was making a real difference in people's lives. This got me through some of the hard times. By the age of 52, I still longed for a partner, a companion in older age, someone to be there. I tried to remain indifferent, like Ignatius talks about, holding my desires and my longings for marriage with my palms open, not with my hands tightly clenched. Finally, I said, God, I'm not going to pray about it anymore. You know what is on my heart. I am done praying about it. From here on, whatever you decide to give me, singleness or marriage, I will receive it as a gift from you. What I really want is you. All I have is you. And she says, afterwards, I cried tears of true contentment and relinquishment. And she concludes, that's when I realized in a deeper way that my longing for marriage was the outward expression of my internal longing for the Lord. This was a very significant moment for me. God had brought me to a moment of absolute indifference. It truly did not matter to me if I married or not. Now, Emily's testimony reminds me of something that Sam Albury said in his book, um, I believe it's The Seven Myths of Singleness. He said, marriage might show us the shape of the gospel, but it's celibacy that shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. Marriage might show us the shape of the gospel, Christ and his church. Celibacy shows us the sufficiency of the gospel that is actually more satisfying than marriage, more satisfying than sex, more satisfying than passing your name along, whatever we've invested our value in, especially in a culture that doesn't believe that there's anything better than an active and fulfilling sex life. Those of you who are living celibacy and are in the process and struggle that it requires, you show with your life that Jesus is enough. Married people, you're showing us that Jesus is committed till death and beyond. Celibates, you're showing us that Jesus is enough, and we need both Symbols, they complement one another. The permanence of God's love in marriage and the triumph of God's love through celibacy. Sacramental marriage showing us the depth of God's love, a covenant with one person for a lifetime. Sacramental celibacy picturing the breadth of God's love, a covenant with all of God's people with fewer hindrances. And we need both callings to be received in this church and lived fully and passionately with committed hearts. Wherever God has you, say yes to your symbol with all your heart. And I don't know how long it will be. Whether you're married or celibate, I don't know how long you'll be in this station. 
But I'm asking you for today, the day that we are in, this Resurrection Sunday, live your symbol with all your heart. And we need both pictures, both symbols, both callings, side by side in close community around this table and around our tables. Parents, we can't be everything to our children. We are not omnicompetent. We need spiritual aunts and uncles to invest in our kids. We need godparents, God, God, uh, fathers and godmothers, some of whom who are celibate, to love our kids, to invest in them, to share our table, to share our community. Those who are living celibate, either temporarily or permanently, you're not uh, independent either. You need families. You need people of all stations of life, other celibates, people who are married, people with kids. Maybe you felt left out. I'm so sorry that sometimes you felt uh, left out, unseen, pushed to the side, invisible, not invited over, doing it on your own. COVID's made it worse. Families need you. Families need you. This family needs you. Around our table, we, we need to be around your table too. Let's be rid of the myth of omnicompetence and self-sufficiency. COVID has divided us up and required this of us to some degree, but from the beginning, it was not so. The nuclear family is beautiful, but it's not enough. Celibacy is beautiful, but it's not enough. So let's be vulnerable enough to admit we need each other. So as some of you know, I was away uh, for a week after Easter to do some study and writing. During that week away, and I have permission to share this, my family contracted COVID. I was on my second dose of COVID uh, vaccine, but it wasn't at that two-week full vaccination period. So while they were contagious, I had to stay away from my home nearly an additional second week. So I was back in Chicago, but the only way I could see my family was to put a mask on to be outside with them. And it was so crushing. It was so sad. Um, but let me tell you something that happened. As I was working alone, as I was eating alone, I, got some, I began to get some invitations to dinner. Someone with, someone with his kids, hey, why don't you come on over? Hey, why don't you come do a workout? Someone whose kids were grown invited me over to their house to stay and to eat. And let me tell you, um, I just realized how much damage has been done to our community from being separated from one another. And I understand we needed to do it. We needed to be, but my life was so much more rich and more full around a table where stories could be shared, where callings could be shared. Our whole church needs each other to fulfill our call. If I were to sum this all up, this whole message, it would be in the words of an onlooker to the early church. He was writing a letter. He knew about Christians. He knew the way they lived. And he said, like, something, they're doing something so unique. They're sharing their tables, but not their beds. They're sharing their tables, but not their beds. And that's shorthand for the people of God living sacramental marriages that are exclusive and lifelong and sacramental celibacy, and doing so in hospitality and community with one another. This is our supernatural, scandalous, sacrificial call together. So let's get vaccinated. Let's get back together around the table. Let's get back together around tables. Let's each of us place our entire life on this table and receive 
the gift of life from our beloved Jesus Christ in return. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.